My brief this morning is to give you an account of philanthropy within the university. And uh, if you think about that, what that means is that effectively it's a history of the University of Oxford. Uh, and I'm told I have about an hour uh, to get it into. So hold on to your hats. It's, it's going to be quite a, a rush. The, um, the basic point I think I want to make is that philanthropy was uh, a key part of Oxford's development from very early days indeed. And uh, I want to support that uh, assertion by also stating that, in my opinion, philanthropy didn't play a role simply as a way of enabling existing institutions to flourish and to grow. It actually created a lot of those institutions. It was fundamental to the way that the university developed. And I think the point here is that Oxford would not simply be smaller and poorer than it is today without philanthropy. It would actually look and behave quite, quite differently. Uh, and, and this is something I, I want to try and develop. And I'll do so by showing uh, pictures of mainly buildings so that you can see for yourselves, if you don't already know, uh, instances of, of the points I'm, I'm making. And if you get terribly excited, uh, at 11.30, there is a guided walk led by Alistair Lack, starting from Rhodes House, uh, which is actually going to take you on a, a trail of this, and you'll have lots of stories and so on. So it's a, a sort of joint effort between the two of us, and I think we'll finish in time for you all to sprint off to, 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 to Rhodes House to, to enjoy that. Some of you may have done it yesterday, because it was uh, done yesterday afternoon. As I mentioned, the first point to make is that uh, it's wrong to think of philanthropy as the icing on the cake for Oxford. Uh, most people in this country today fail to appreciate how different is the modern university system from what went before. They assume that the university system has always been state-funded, albeit with the welcome assistance of uh, private giving. Uh, that's a total misapprehension. Oxford first applied for government assistance in 1919. Uh, the first public money it received was £30,000. Sort of average salary uh, these days. That was the entire annual income it got when it first applied for government assistance. And the university only became dependent on government funding after the Second World War. In other words, Oxford's been a state-funded university for only 60 or so of its 900 years. And I think, although at one level most of us realise that, it, it takes a little bit of grappling with to appreciate it. So different is the world now uh, compared to what it was before. Now, the early history of the university is shrouded, of course, in mystery. Uh, and it has been described, interestingly, as more an intellectual gathering uh, than an institution. It was totally deregulated to an extent that would have gladdened the hearts of, of Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. There was no, no regulation. Uh, anyone who was teaching within the university got paid only if students turned up and paid fees. There was no career structure, no salary structure. I'd rather we kept this to ourselves just for the, for the moment. Um, 
<laughs> but but that, that's how, it, uh, that's how, the, how the system began. It was only very gradually that it acquired any sort of organisation at all. It was a remarkably democratic enterprise in that the control of the university was in the hands of the, the teaching masters, essentially, of, of the university. The earliest record that I've been able to come across of outside support for the university, uh, two interesting examples from the late 12th century, the 1190s. Um, King Richard I maintained a clerk at Oxford called Nicholas of Hungary uh, in what were called the Oxford schools at that time. That was what the university was known as. And uh, in 1198, the Archbishop of Canterbury maintained a student called Robert of Vermeer. Now, a couple of points there. One is the international nature of that early university. And the second point, I think, is that benefactions early on were, were playing a role in, in the growth of the university. The university's first income, annual income, as opposed to gifts, uh, came interestingly as a result of a dispute with the town of Oxford. Uh, one of very many uh, town gown disputes. Uh, I suppose I ought to point out that, so far as the town is concerned, the university is something of a cuckoo in the nest. The town was here much earlier than the university, and uh, the view of some townsfolk is that all was well in Oxford till the university arrived, and it's been downhill pretty much ever since. Uh, it's a particular point of view, but it's one we have to, have to acknowledge. Uh, so the, the first income came about as a result of a dispute with the town. What happened in 1209 was that uh, a townswoman uh, was murdered, uh, allegedly, by a student. Uh, as a result of that, uh, a number of students were, were hanged by the, the town authorities. Uh, the university dispersed, uh, as a result of which, down the line, we get the foundation of Cambridge University, of course. Uh, and when the university reassembled uh, in 1214 and the set settlement was, was reached, what we find is the university's first charter of privileges, which is the oldest document in the university archives. And it is interesting if there are ever large conferences to which are attached exhibitions at which represented universities can display their charters of foundation and so on. They all turn up with, with charters almost as big as these screens with magnificent array of seals on. And Oxford rather apologetically has to go along saying, well, terribly sorry, but this is all we've got. Um, and it is uh, a small but, but highly significant uh, document, I say of 1214. Because it's the first document that indicates to us that the university had any organisation and indeed it imposed an organisation to some extent on the university. And what is more, it began the long process of giving univer the university privileges over against the town. Which mean meant in the long run that Oxford changed from being a commercial marketing centre that also did education to an educational centre that also did marketing. It, it results in the long run in, in a complete uh, switch. And among other stipulations and penalties imposed on the town was the annual payment to the university of 52 shillings a year. And this was the university's first income. £2.10, uh, effectively, it got. It's not philanthropy, but it, it's the start of uh, an income. I mean, the university in these early days really owned nothing. Um, St Mary's Church, you're familiar with. The part of the church uh, I'd like you to look at 
is the building at the, uh, let's say it's the northeast corner here. <clears throat> it's a two-story building of about 1320. And these are the university's first properties, uh, provided by uh, Thomas Cobham, Bishop of Worcester, in 1320. And it is at the ground floor. Again, some of you will have seen this. It's now a coffee shop. Is it called, changes its name, The Spires, I think, is its current name. Somebody can correct me if it isn't. Uh, but uh, that is the room of about 1320, provided by uh, Bishop Cobham uh, for, for the university's use. Uh, they had that room, the room above, uh, which was to house the gift of manuscripts that he gave. So that was the first library of the university. So what you've got down here is uh, the first university administrative offices and above first university library. It's interesting, isn't it, noteworthy, that the first major, major gift to the university wasn't a building for teaching purposes, but for administration. Uh, and we now spend all our time moaning about uh, administration. Uh, and the, um, the room had in it a series of chests, and that's where you sat on the chests and conducted business. They contained any valuables that the university had, any money and, and so on. Uh, and indeed, until fairly recently, the university's finance office was known as the university chest still, where anybody with paycheck came from the university chest, which is a throwback to this period. So a, ma a major benefaction of these, the, these two buildings. And a century later, the university's greatest fundraising campaign to date was actually for teaching purposes, and that's the Divinity School, which you'll all be thoroughly familiar with. It was the first mass appeal and letter-writing effort. It took over 60 years to complete uh, this school, and that's, I think, highly significant. The question to ask, why did the university need uh, a divinity school? And secondly, why did it take so long to raise the money? It needed the school to meet the perceived threat from colleges. Colleges had grown rapidly in size and in number to the point where they had become mini-universities in their own right. And the colleges, by this date, were providing almost everything that students needed. And the university was worried about this. The Divinity School, in a way, is a declaration of intent uh, by the university that it's going to stand up for itself uh, and is not going to be completely sidelined by colleges. But, of course, that declaration was somewhat muted by the fact that it took 60 years uh, to complete the building, by which time the, the message had died away somewhat. Um, as the university had no such benefactor as Walter de Merton or, or William of Wickham. Uh, only 50 years or so previously, the whole of New College was built in a fraction of the time that it took the university to construct this single room, magnificent as it is. And eventually, it was uh, a Bishop of London, Thomas Kemp, uh, who came to the rescue with a donation of 1,000 marks, about £666. Um, but I think what's interesting to me in the present context of this morning is the role played by the sheer number of small benefactors who contributed to the completion of this room. If you've craned your necks and, and looked upwards, you will have seen on the ceiling there all those bosses containing initials and uh, coats of arms of the benefactors who gave. There are over 400 of them. Somebody's counted them. Uh, and it, it, is a, it is remarkable. One I would just point out to you, in case you haven't seen it before, 
is the initial there. It's a W intertwined with an O, uh, and standing for a man called William Orchard, who was the architect of the, the vault there. He also did the vault in the cathedral at Christchurch. Um, so th there you have ma a mass appeal, uh, very interestingly uh, enshrined in, in, in stone for us. I'm going to have to come back to the um, tensions between the university and colleges and, and the role that's played in Oxford's history. But partway through building the Divinity School, the university was given another major benefaction, and that was a magnificent collection of books and manuscripts by Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, younger brother of King Henry V. And that led to the building of, of course, Duke Humphrey's library, which is the room above the Divinity School. It made Oxford, for a time, a preeminent centre of European research. It was a cent great central collection. But, of course, it brought with it considerable financial implications. Uh, the, the problem, often with great benefactions, is that you have to acknowledge the fact, if somebody gives you a magnificent library, you can't just shove the books under the bed and say, well, thanks very much, we'll have it, get them out and have another look at them in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, you've actually got a bill somewhere that displays the magnificent, not only of the collection, but of course of the person who's given uh, the collection also. So the university, having bankrupted itself, putting up the Divinity School, then has somehow to raise the money uh, to, to fund the, the building of, of Duke Humphrey's library. And uh, it, this, at a time when, it's, it's impossible to be sure, but it seems that at this period, a full 300 years, remember, after the university has got started, the university's annual income is anywhere between 35 and 95 pounds. This is not, even by the standards of the time, this is not a wealthy institution. Individual colleges already were out of sight compared to the, to the <coughs> university. And for any major expenditure, so low was the university's annual income, that for any major expenditure, it relied heavily on external funding. And as we all know, that makes forward planning very difficult. Now, let me say a word about colleges then. It was the growth of colleges that transformed Oxford from a centripetal to a centrifugal institution. And that was the norm until challenged in the 20th and 21st centuries. Bear in mind that colleges have always been more powerful in Oxford than in Cambridge. The Ca in Cambridge, the university, never lost, the university never lost control quite to the extent that it did, that it did in Oxford. Colleges, as you know, are autonomous, self-governing bodies. Above all, they were endowed and that was crucial. It enabled them to see off their more numerous predecessors, the academic halls or hostels, which were unendowed. And in case you think you don't know any of the old academic halls in Oxford, I'll show you one of them. And it's not, sadly, if you could tear your eyes from Oddbins for a moment, it's the one next to it, which is A-Plan Insurance now, if anybody is, is living in, in, in the town. And on the front of it, it's standard, rather ordinary, 19th century building, plain stucco front with a rather pretentious 20th century shop front shoved in underneath. But as so often in Oxford, the building at the back is actually a lot older than what you see at the front. 
And if you go round the back of that, well, you can't actually because it's locked now, but uh, there was a time, and I can show you, that is the back. And that is uh, the bu a building of about 1300. And the point for showing you that is because this is one of the few buildings left in Oxford that we know has been used as an academic hall. This is where most students in Oxford were living for most of the first 400 years or so of the university's existence. Uh, it's impossible to be sure about figures. It seems that about the time of this building, say about 1300, there were something like 1500 students in Oxford. Not many, you think. But bear in mind at that time the total population of the country is about 6 million. So if you multiply by 10, it looks a bit more respectable. But the point here is that 1,400 of those 1,500 were living not in colleges. There were only three anyway. But they weren't living there. They were living in houses like this. So the pattern in Oxford for a long, long time was that students lived in small groups of 10 or 12 or so, very often in a house rented by a teaching master, in a place like this. They weren't living in colleges. Cut this short, you could say that an unobservant traveller passing through Oxford might not have noticed there was a university here at all. So different did it look from that opening slide I showed you of all the colleges and, and university uh, buildings. And this, of course, incidentally, is one of the reasons why there was so much trouble between town and gown. It's because you have 1,400 young, high-spirited, energetic young men, more or less out of control, uh, wandering uh, through town. But that, that's another talk altogether. Um, so this is what the academic halls were. They were licensed. They could go on for a long, long period. But they were not endowed. They were not corporate bodies. It meant that, if necessary, they could revert to a previous existence or change their careers altogether. The fact that this is called Tackley's Inn tells you about one of its other careers. Uh, and eventually these die out and Oxford is taken over by colleges so that by 1500, having been in 1300, there were 120 odd of these academic halls in Oxford. By 1500, there were only eight. And almost all students by then were living in colleges. This is a big shift. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll come on to that now. Endowment played uh, an important role in the slow development of an academic profession. You remember I told you at the beginning there really is no such thing as an academic profession. This comes in. It happens initially in, in a private, individual way. You find that patrons are supporting one or more students uh, to be at Oxford. Uh, the scholars might be relatives of theirs. They might come from the same part of the world. But for some reason, uh, they've decided to support them. And they will uh, pay fees to a tutor and they'll provide materials and, and so on. Um, students wanting to support themselves or having to support themselves uh, could write letters, begging letters, exactly the same sort of thing that's going on now. Formularies survive with <coughs> templates of letters saying how you write a letter asking for money. There's a famous one that is now, it's ended up in the archives at Exeter Cathedral and it is entitled 22 Ways to Ask an Archdeacon for Money. Uh, <laughs> 
which is <laughs> it's wonderful. But there are lots of, of these. It's, it's, there, it's a desperate need. Because there is no state support, you see. These students coming in, they're facing a five-year co five course of study to get a bachelor's degree, a seven-year course of study to, to obtain a master's degree. And there is no financial support. That is a long time to support themselves. The net result, it's impossible to be sure, but the net result seems to be that perhaps 50% of students coming to Oxford did not proceed to a degree because it's too long to support yourself. Uh, we have a problem here uh, because we think quite differently. I bet a lot of you are thinking 50%, you know, and you're thinking failure rates. No institution in this country now could survive on the basis of only 50% of its students achieving an award. They thought differently. They thought it was better to go to university and get some education than not to go and get none. It's just a different way of, uh, uh, of approaching it. But it was a long, tough course, and finding the financial wherewithal was a major part of, of, of a student's uh, preoccupations at that time. Colleges make a huge difference to this, and you find the collegiate structure uh, developing very slowly in Oxford. And I just want to um, uh, point to Worcester College, uh, for, but not to look at the 18th century classical buildings. The buildings you see on the right, the old cottages, which were Benedictine uh, cottages. And the Benedictines in Oxford played a big role in developing a whole system of tuitions and lectures and supporting students in housing. Uh, and and uh, gradually what you get is the fully formed collegiate pattern emerging. So I hope I've, I've done enough to, to, to demonstrate that colleges did not descend from the skies, somehow fully formed, uh, but are, are a gradual uh, uh, evolution. They were set up to provide accommodation and financial support, uh, not for undergraduates. Uh, colleges initially are set up to provide for fellows and uh, for some graduate students. Uh, essentially, often they're set up to, to provide an education for the founder's kin. I mean, Walter de Merton is only the most famous of these, the foundation of, of, of Merton. He had um, uh, exceptionally uh, fertile sisters uh, and ended up with a lot of nephews and was obliged to provide for them. And one of his great motivations in setting up Merton College was to provide um, for, for family members. But they were, they were very small, very privileged institutions, and only later uh, did the main student body get access to them. College founders saw themselves as engaged in a charitable and pious venture, which would, of course, support education also, but would also perpetuate their memories and ensure that masses were said for themselves and for the souls of their families. And really, apart from the saying of masses, what has changed? You know, the motivation uh, remains broadly similar. Uh, Oxford had three colleges founded in the 13th century. You all know which they are. Uh, Univ, Balliol, and Merton. I do not propose to go into the issue of which of them uh, precedes the others. Uh, I'll leave them to fight that out. But you've got three coming together in the mid-13th century. And one college in Cambridge, Peterhouse. Peterhouse... Uh, explicitly modelled on Merton College. But with the foundation of the King's Hall in Cambridge in 1317 by Edward II, the focus shifted to the other place. Whereas up to then it was Oxford that had attracted such wealth as was available to found uh, colleges, the money now switched to Cambridge, which is interesting. Uh, 
Between 1317 and 1352, seven colleges were founded in Cambridge, two in Oxford. Now, what does this demonstrate? I think the importance of how an institution is perceived. It wasn't that Cambridge had suddenly become a superior university. People were following a royal lead. Is this fashion? And don't underestimate it. It has direct relevance today. And Oxford, helping Oxford is not simply a matter of, of, of giving money. That's only part of it. Uh, because people will only give if they think that the institution to which they're being asked to give merits support. And Oxford needs its alumni to demonstrate to the world at large that it is an institution that deserves the widest possible support, not least because of the benefits that a centre of excellence bring, uh, brings to society as a whole. It's not just for Oxford's benefit. It's for the benefit of, of the whole of society. And if people don't perceive that, they will not give. And you have parallels of this throughout the history of the university where it is perceived as being not a worthy recipient. It is not doing enough for society or it is actually damaging society. As in the 15th century when Oxford was tainted with heresy as a result of John Wycliffe and there's no way that people would give money there. And again, it all went to Cambridge. People will be giving, we just have to make sure they give uh, to, to a worthy recipient. Now, uh, as I mentioned, the, the three that we have, the initial ones at Oxford, um, the three of them, there's the um, charter for, for Balliol, um, uh, 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 authorization of the foundation of, uh, of Balliol. Balliol of those three, the only college founded by a layperson, um, John de Balliol and his wife, uh, Devagila. Uh, Merton, more typically, was founded by an ecclesiastic, uh, William, um, Walter de Merton, and there he is uh, proudly displayed on the front next, next, next to Hen King Henry III. Uh, Oriel College, um, founded by an ecclesiastic, Adam de Broome, and Univ by William of Durham. And that was the, the general pattern. There are no royal foundations in Oxford. Uh, Oriel College claims a royal foundation, but actually Adam de Broome was the king's almoner. Uh, and although Edward II agreed to be patron, he, I don't think we can say he actually found, founded it. I mean, one, one of the reasons for the success of the King's Hall at Cambridge was that it was a royal foundation, and therefore people followed uh, uh, the, the royal uh, lead. Let me say a word or two about New College because of its, its significance at this date. It's... In a way, difficult to convey the impact of New College because Oxford is stuffed full of these places now. But if you imagine the time when it was founded, there were none on this scale. I mean, Merton had a quadrangle already, but it was very, very small. And Merton's quad doesn't have the chapel in it. It doesn't have the hall in it. Uh, New College significance architecturally is it takes the quadrangular pattern and it canonizes it, really. Um, so it's the monastic cloister in, in origin. But everything the college needs is there within the, the quad. And it is so successful that this becomes the model. From now on, this is what a college is, both here and at Cambridge, and, and later on uh, abroad, if you think of the Ivy League uh, colleges in, in, in the States, for instance. And um, again, just making this point about the founders of the college, there you have, for those of you who, who don't know New College too well, this is the triptych of statues that you see there and dotted about the college, uh, glorifying the founder. And there, I've, I've seen it observed very nicely, 
that this tells you all you need to know about a medieval bishop's sense of his place in the cosmos, which is slightly below the Virgin Mary, but at least on a par with the Archangel Gabriel, which is the, <laughs> the, other, the other figure there. Um, but this is, this is your typical figure. These are the great men of the age, because the great bishops of the age <clears throat> are also the leading politicians <coughs> and uh, leading civil servants of the age. Vast sums of money passed through William of Wickham's hands, quite a bit stuck, and he had uh, quite a bit to spare for the, the foundation of, of New College. But this is the sort of figure we are, we are looking at as, as the major benefactors in, in these days. And uh, New College also highly significant because it's the first college that takes undergraduates on any scale. So it's breaking the mould in a number of ways. It's the sheer size. Uh, it's, it's also the fact that it takes uh, undergraduates. And from now on, colleges will begin to win out over the academic halls. Parents much, much happier to send their sons to a place like this, where they can at least be locked in, uh, compared to being let loose in town and not knowing if you're going to get them back in one piece at, at the end of an academic year. Uh, colleges also, as I mentioned earlier, are, of course, endowed and their corporate bodies. That means they have a continuous existence and they gradually acquire benefactions, endowments, uh, and become stabilised uh, and, and they grow um, uh, through the ages. Academic halls have none of that. So ultimately it's going to be New College and, and the other colleges that, that win over. Now, um, you go into New College Garden, and, th and this is a, a little point I want to make quickly. It's to do with the town again and the university's relationship with the town. Because there in New College Garden, you see what a casual visitor to Oxford uh, thinks is uh, a very fine college wall. And the point is, of course, it is not. It's city wall. And it's city wall of at least 100 years earlier than the college. The point of this being a reminder to me uh, to mention to you the reason why I was able to show the very first slide that I did, that great panoply in the centre of Oxford of colleges and university buildings, so that any visitor to Oxford gets the impression that what we have here is a university and its colleges, round which a town has grown up to service it. Whereas chronologically, it was exactly the opposite. So how did the university and the colleges come to be physically so dominant in the centre of Oxford? The reason is that um, courses I, don't, I just don't have time to go into, but the town of Oxford went into a very steep, very prolonged economic decline leading up to about 1500 or so. What that meant was that property, land, was empty, unused, nobody wanted it. And by coincidence, this happened just at the time when colleges in particular were looking to expand in size and in number. It meant that William of Wickham could buy up 30 or whatever hectares of land on the northeast corner of Oxford that nobody else wanted and put his college there and he was able to buy the land for next to nothing. There was nothing crooked about it. Uh, it was bought fair and square, but it was bought very cheaply. And this is why now we have the colleges and the university dominant in the centre. It is a land grab, but it's a totally legitimate land grab. There was, um, there was a condition on the foundation of New College. It had to promise to maintain the city wall in perpetuity, which it's done. 600 years, very nicely. And once every three years, the mayor of Oxford perambulates the wall to check that the college is still keeping its promise to maintain it. 
uh, in case of attack from the science area, presumably, which is just to the, uh, just to the north, north there. But uh, it's one of those lovely ironies. Oxford's history full of these rather delicious ironies, and it's the reason why the best-preserved stretch of city wall is in a college garden. Uh, and it relates to this takeover of the centre, which is done as a result of a great importing of, of wealth into, into colleges, remember in particular, uh, rather than the university. And it is the start of the age of college supremacy. Uh, colleges from now on until well into the 20th century to the late 20th century dominate everything that, that happens in, in Oxford. And... It would be just too tedious to recite how each college has, benefit, has benefited from the generosity of patrons and alumni. And I just mention one or two whose building or development points to significant currents within society at large. And the first of those I will mention is Christchurch. Um, Christchurch was, was charged by Cardinal Wolsey, its founder, uh, with promoting the new humanist classical learning. It was academically significant. Um, it's the last pre-Reformation college and of course it also demonstrates the, the, the dangers of depending on a single patron because Wolsey, as you know, fell from power before they completed it and it is Oxford's biggest unfinished project, effectively. Uh, the, what, what you're seeing there is where the cloisters would have been. You're aware of, of the ghosts of the cloisters that are there. Just as an aside, just the other day I was wandering around here and there was a tour party, as always, going around Christchurch. And one of them asked the guide, I overheard this, uh, they said to the guide, oh, what, what are those for um, here? And quick as a flash, the guide said, oh, that's where the heads of the college are buried, she said. And uh, I thought, full marks for thinking on your feet, but very few for accuracy. Perhaps a, perhaps a very Oxford trait. Um, um, <laughs> Uh, you, you know differently. That's where the buttresses of the, the cloisters would have been had, had, had the cloister been built. And it's interesting, it's a good topic when talking to conservation students, for instance, to say to them, somebody comes along with an unlimited sum of money and says, here you are, finish the college. Would you, you know, discuss? Well, we won't discuss it at the moment, but, but it, it is, it's a significant development, not just in the sheer s scale of the, of the place, uh, but for, the, for its role in, in promoting, as I say, the, 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 the new learning. And in the 16th and 17th centuries, as ecclesiastical patronage waned, new types of patron emerged. You get uh, the prominent civil servant, uh, Sir Thomas Pope, at Trinity College. Um, you get uh, the man of trade, uh, Sir Thomas White, at St. John's College. Actually, this is much later than then, but it's the only slide I've got of St. John's, shame on me. Um, Thomas White, there's Thomas Teasdale at Pembroke, a uh, local man from Abington, in fact, to Brewer. Uh, or you get the, the landowner patron coming in, as at Wadham, Sir Nicholas and Lady Dorothy Wadham there. Um, very interesting example of, of what to do uh, if you're wealthy and you find you just got thoroughly ticked off with your relatives arguing amongst themselves as to who's going to share your wealth on your death. Uh, so they founded a college instead and uh, cocked a snook at the lot of them and, and Oxford therefore has, uh, has Wadham College nicely. Uh, except perhaps in Sir Thomas Pope's case, Sir Thomas Pope was a very devout, devout Catholic, um, education 
largely replaces piety as a driving force in the founder of these, these newer colleges. Um, but it's notable that support of founders' kin and local connections do continue to feature special arrangements for relatives and for people coming, in this case, from Somerset, which is where the, the, the Wadhams uh, originated. So suddenly, I say suddenly, suddenly in Oxford terms, so over a couple of hundred years, you have Oxford taken over by colleges physically and the university actually under the control of, of colleges, with the university, as I say, almost sidelined, uh, ratifying degrees and that sort of thing. So how does the university respond to this great outpouring of patronage and building? It wasn't entirely cowed, though its resources couldn't match this. If you look at the Bodleian Library School's quadrangle, that matches, after all, anything being put up uh, by a college. And Sir Thomas Bodley, the founder of or the re-founder of, of, of the library, uh, was one of these new men of the age. He got his wealth as a result of the fortunate marriage to the widow of a pilchard merchant who had built up a great fortune out of the seas, and Thomas Bodley got hold of it. And uh, so Bodleian Library built on pilchards, you could, you could say. You can see a good pub quiz questions coming in here. Can't, what is the connection between the Bodleian Library and Pilchards? That's quite a good one. Um, so, uh, look also the Botanic Gardens. I mean, Oxford acquires um, the first scientific botanic garden in England, and I think I'm right in saying probably the third in Europe, uh, uh, as a result of a donation from Henry Danvers, Earl of Danby, and that's known as the Danby Gate, what you're looking at there. He gave £5,000 for that. Uh, and it is, incidentally, Oxford's first properly classical building. Uh, a lot of people think the Sheldonian Theatre is, but this predates the uh, Sheldonian Theatre, talking of which. Um, there you have the great panoply of classical buildings that, that comes into Oxford from the mid-17th century onwards and, and dominates uh, the city for two, 200 years. Uh, but here you've got, the, I think, the university at last making a statement because these are university buildings on a big scale, not college buildings. And it is the start of something of a, of a push back by the, by the university. The Sheldonian Theatre, as you know, opened in, in 1669 to provide for, for university ceremonies. And um, the major donor there was uh, a man called Gilbert Sheldon, who was Archbishop of, of Canterbury. Um, Usual problem with, with the university, never quite enough money, so they cut corners. Uh, they began to use cheaper stone uh, with dire consequences before too long, and I shall return to that before I've, I've finished, but looking magnificent now as, as it's refaced. The Sheldonian followed in 1683 by the building just to the, the right of it there, the old Ashmolean Museum, now the Museum of the the history of science, and on the other side by the Clarendon building, built to house the university press. The university press had previously been housed in the roof space of the Sheldonian Theatre, uh, and they built an entire building, early 18th century, uh, split in two, as you know. There is the, the major benefactor, uh, indirectly, uh, Lord Clarendon himself, uh, in the niche there. Uh, his son gave the rights to his history, Lord Clarendon's history of the Great Rebellion, gave the rights to the university, which was very, very profitable 
and the university put up the, the Clarendon building um, to house it. As I say, split between the middle, so that you could have the secular press on one side and the sacred press on the other. I used to have an office in this building. I was never quite sure if I was in sacred or secular. Um, but the building, it's significant... <coughs> It's a significant building for reasons that people perhaps don't quite know now because we no longer, we don't have the classical education that people would have taken for granted. So they don't read the building in quite the same way, but just quickly, it is, uh, it is in effect uh, a triumphal arch through which you process out of the world, which is Broad Street, uh, out of the world through the triumphal arch into the Republic of Letters which is the Bodleian Library. And of course, as you enter the Bodleian, there is that label over the door welcoming you into the Republic of Letters. That's the symbolism that, that we have lost. Um, but as I say, these are significant buildings, uh, and it is the university uh, making, at least phys in physical terms, making something of a, a, of a comeback. And this period has given us some quite remarkable buildings. I'd, I'd just commend especially to you one that you'll be familiar with, but perhaps more from the outside, than from the inside, unless any of you are from All Souls, because it is the library at All Souls, the great new library, uh, put up in the early 18th century. As a result, this is interesting, as a result of a benefaction from a man called Christopher Codrington, who was a great sugar plantation owner in the West Indies. So, if the Bodleian has a connection with Pilchards, does All Souls have a connection with slavery in, in the West Indies? Uh, but the building put up by Nicholas Hawksmoor, uh, classical architect, Baroque classical architect, uh, and he put up the outside of it so that it looks, does it not, as if it marries very neatly with the 15th century chapel of the college. It balances it, which is quite something for a classical architect to do. There are certain giveaways, such as the round-headed window there, which is not classical, but to a casual glance, people think that it's all one build. Yet, if you go inside the Codrington Library, that's the same window looking from the inside out. It is purely classical. You see nothing Gothic. So from the outside, to a casual glance, you see nothing classical. From the inside, you see nothing Gothic. It's... it's it, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful building and is a demonstration of the best sort of thing that, 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 that can, was being achieved at that time. And this outpouring of classical architecture continued with arguably the most spectacular building of them all, which was the Radcliffe Camera, you're all familiar with, um, completed 1748. Uh, John Radcliffe, of course, uh, he was a doctor uh, and proof if proof was needed, that medical fortunes are not a peculiarly modern phenomenon. Um, he was something of a one-man 18th century welcome trust. Um, he built up a colossal fortune. It is said more on the basis of his bedside manner than his skill as a doctor, but you know, I, how much has changed? Um, he built up a huge fortune, didn't have an immediate family, left it left his fortune to the university. And of course the Radcliffe Trust exists to this date. And uh, his fortune and the trustees have been responsible, uh, not, well, responsible not only for the Radcliffe camera, uh, but two other buildings, one university, one non-university, or only part, partly university, and that was the Radcliffe uh, Infirmary, which is now of course shrouded in scaffolding and so on. This is going to be the heart of the, the new academic 
quarter of the university, uh, put up in the late 18th century, the first hospital available. Uh, the university, uh, very much a town-gown collaboration, this one, uh, with the two, but, but from Radcliffe's money. And next door to it, of course, you're familiar with the, the Radcliffe Observatory, also uh, founded by Radcliffe's fortune. And uh, the Radcliffe Trust, as I say, flourishes to this day. It's wherewithal considerably enhanced when agricultural land left to it by Dr. Radcliffe was acquired for the formation of Milton Keynes. Stroke of luck there. And it currently makes grants of approximately a third of a million uh, every year. Now, if I may dwell on a point for a moment, and that is medicine. Uh, munificence towards medicine has been a consistent theme, um, certainly from, from the 18th century onwards. And it's helped underpin an impressive line of achievements that redound to the credit of Oxford researchers and administrators. Uh, the discovery of penicillin here in the 1940s is but the most spectacular of a long line of significant developments for which we should all feel profoundly grateful. Uh, I have my own uh, little favourites, man that nobody's heard of, called Edward Stone. Uh, he was at Wadham College, uh, became a clergyman, uh, remained at the college but went out to serve his cure and got very interested in folk remedies and became particularly interested in the fact that the villagers he visited uh, all made use of willow bark in some form or other for treating fevers and headaches and so on. And he set out to analyse it and, of course, isolated salicylic acid. So ultimately you get penicillin, you get aspirin as a result. So you know, something we could all feel, feel grateful for. And, and people like this are, are at the heart of, of what Oxford's about in the 18th century. And very generously just handing over the, the products of their research, as, as they did with penicillin in, in the 40s. I don't think the university would ever do that now, uh, but in the 40s, that's what you did. You, you, you made the results of, of your research uh, freely, freely available. Uh, the last great neoclassical building to go up in Oxford, the Ashmolean Museum and the Taylor Institution, uh, opened in 1845. Um, the Randolph Gallery in the museum commemorates the... Uh, one of the principal benefactors, Francis Randolph, Dr. Francis Randolph, who's also, of course, commemorated in the hotel just across the, uh, uh, across the road. And remember here that the Ashmolean is a teaching uh, and an, a research institution, not just a gallery. That's the point about these great university uh, institutions, the museums and so on, is that they are teaching and research centres. Uh, they are not just collections of uh, works of art or, or, or of archaeology. And uh, these, uh, certainly in the 19th century, these great institutions like the Ashmolean and one I'm going to mention in just a moment, the University Museum of Natural History, uh, are in direct line to the Divinity School. They represent the university's determination to maintain itself at the forefront uh, and not to be totally sidelined uh, by colleges. These are university, great university institutions. Um, now, despite my promise, uh, this talk is turning into a catalogue. Uh, and to say that the 19th and 20th centuries brought to a fortune at Oxford more of the same is to shortchange those centuries and, and their benefactors outrageously. Uh, the nature and motivation of benefactors has undoubtedly changed. And I want to focus briefly on that aspect of, of modern giving rather than just read out a catalogue. And as an example of that, I'm going to uh, 
show you, Keeble College, uh, set up by reformers uh, to break the aristocratic stranglehold. This is an anti-Christchurch college, if you like. Christchurch having been by then the preeminent aristocratic college. It's a reforming college. You probably agree that they got a college different from all others uh, at Keeble, uh, sponsored in part by the Chancellor of the Exchequer. A rare example of philanthropy from the Exchequer. In this case, because shortly before Keeble was built, the government took off tax on bricks. So bricks suddenly became a cheap building material. Make of that what you will. Um, but the college was founded by means of a public appeal. It had no one great benefactor. It was, I think it's the first, I think I'm right in saying, it's the first such public appeal for, for a new college. And within two years, they had raised 35,000 of the 50,000 that was required. And that's, that's quite an achievement, because it's mainly from fairly small benefactors, not, not large-scale benefactors. All the sums raised were put into the buildings. Tutors were to be paid only out of student fees. They were going back to the, the early university. They've had to abandon that. They've now had to build up an endowment for the whole running of the college, like everybody else. But it, that lofty ideal is, is really quite interesting, uh, I think. Um, so, a reforming institution. Similarly, across the road, a university institution, the University Museum, Natural History, uh, opened in 1860, another great unfinished project. It never was completed. Uh, but it offers other innovative fundraising schemes. Uh, the bulk of the costs for this building were met from the university press. And we should pause, I think, for a moment to acknowledge our huge debt of gratitude to the university press, which pours very, very large sums of money back into the general running of the, of the university. So the, the main uh, source of money here, the university press, but they went out and raised money um, from individuals. Uh, you, you know the museum, you know how all those rich, beautiful carvings that there are uh, within the museum, and you could sponsor a carving. So that Queen Victoria sponsored five. Uh, the, uh, the city of Oxford sponsored one. It sponsored uh, a statue of the Prince Consort. Uh, the undergraduates of Oxford sponsored a statue of Aristotle. I wonder who they'd go for now. Um, but it, it, it's interesting. That, that, so you can attach names and so on to these, these individuals. That's a very modern um, way of doing it. And when you study the list of donors, uh, what you find is that, as at Keeble, reformers are prepared to put their hands in their pockets to support a cause dear to their reforming hearts. In this case, reform meant promoting scientific teaching and research in the face of conservative opposition uh, within the university. And next door, of course, attached to that, you have the Pitt Rivers Museum, uh, which uh, span out, really, to use a modern term, from the fantastic collection of General Lane Fox Pitt Rivers, who, who gave uh, his collection of 20,000 archaeological and anthropolog anthropological uh, items to the uh, uh, to the founding of the, of the Pitt Rivers uh, Museum. And it's continued to attract donations from travellers and scholars and is now one of the world's leading ethnographical uh, uh, museums, uh, directly as a result of, uh, uh, of Pitt Rivers' uh, donation. Around the corner, where the walk will start, if you're quick, Rhodes House, 
um, always struck me as something of a, of a hybrid institution. Uh, it's founded like a college to perpetuate the memory of an individual, in this case, of course, Cecil Rhodes, uh, but also as a centre of education and learning. Uh, and it stands, and the reason I'm, I'm showing it in a way, is it stands as an important symbol of a changing university. And the change is, uh, it's a return to something that, that had been there at the beginning, and I mentioned it, and that is Oxford as an, in, as an international academic institution. And I think... It's there at the beginning, somewhat dies out, and then returns in force in the 20th century. And I think Rhodes House in particular embodies that international character of the university. Beautifully caught in one of my favourite cartoons, depicting the Rhodes Scholar there walking across what you can make out is the Quad at Oriel. And a nice cartoon from the New Yorker magazine of, of, of 1938. Um, but... Oxford is very, very much an international uh, university now. No, nobody thinks twice about it. Uh, and, and it has not always uh, been so, certainly not on, on this scale. And in recent years, the university has branched out into areas of activity that would have astonished our predecessors of only 50 years ago. I've all, uh, I, I don't know if I mentioned or not that, that institutions like the Oxford Martin School or the Blavatnik School of Government uh, almost at random, one might, one might also mention Stanley Ho's gift of two and a half million to support the study of Chinese history, uh, of Landon and Lavinia Clay's gift of seven and a half million uh, for the Mathematics Institute, and of course, Mr. Wafik Saeed's eponymous business school, where we are here. There's also the Global Health Institute, the School of Enterprise and the Environment, the School for Research in Classical and Byzantine Studies, and the Rothermere American Institute, one could go on. Uh, this is an astonishing change over a relatively short period of time, especially since, since the Second World War. We, we tend to take it for granted, but when you look back to a period when there were none of these things, you see just how far the university has moved. Uh, such developments, and I think above all the fact that science is so expensive that it is beyond the purse of even the wealthiest college, mean that in the 20th and 21st centuries, the university has emerged to take centre stage for the first time in centuries. I mean, science is so expensive now that a wealthy college could not afford a decent chemistry laboratory, let alone a nuclear accelerator. Uh, science has to be dealt with across the entire university. This has raised tensions, which is no part of my brief to discuss now, uh, but it is, it is a further stage in Oxford's, uh, in, in Oxford's development. Um, it is now the turn, it seems to me, of the colleges to stand anxiously in the wings, uh, fearful of the shift of power. Colleges might be anxious, but they have grown in number. Uh, the expansion of the university, and especially, of course, the arrival of women in Oxford in 1877, First two women's colleges, 1878, Somerville and, and Lady Margaret Hall, um, and expanding to the extent where women now make up 50% of the student population uh, of Oxford. But those, those developments, and I think in particular the, the universal growth of higher education since the Second World War, have led to the establishment uh, of several new colleges. And, and they're responding to a social and academic revolution that has taken place since 45. The curriculum's been expanded. I've just mentioned those, those new institutes that have been set up. Uh, science has expanded. 
really uh, the university has shifted from being, I think, a humanities university that also taught science to being certainly a science-driven university that also teaches humanities. Uh, it's because science brings in the big money, uh, uh, inevitably. Part of the social economic change, you suddenly find the town becoming a great benefactor of the university in the shape of Lord Nuffield, an Oxford boy. Here he is from a cartoon punch, I think, uh, showing giant horn from the bullnose Morris pouring out largesse and there are the academics scurrying over Magdalen Bridge. You see, <laughs> no man's land, Magdalen Bridge between town and gown in a way. Um, I still get a sense going over Magdalen Bridge in either direction that I'm arriving somewhere different. Another point. But, but here, I, Nuffield gay was exceedingly generous to the university. Uh, no fewer, I think, than seven professorships he set up. And he was very, very generous uh, to medicine, as you will be very well uh, aware. Um, Antonin Bess uh, gave the funds for St. Anthony's, specialising in international studies. Again, an indication of, of how the world is turning. And colleges that specialise in a particular area of study uh, uh, have, have happened uh, since the Second World War. And they, of course, are, are a departure from the generalist function of an Oxford college to this date. Um, there have been a number of graduate studies. There's Lord Nuffield's own, of course, set up to, um, for, for, for so the study of social sciences. His little Kremlin, he used to call it. Um, he, he would much have preferred, I think, to have had a college devoted to engineering. Um, and who's to say he was wrong? Um, but, but we got Nuffield, fine. Uh, Wolfson College, of course, set up. Lineker, St. Cross, Green College, most recently uh, Kellogg College. And the graduate colleges that have been set up um, have in common perhaps a major modern benefactor, the charitable trust or, or, or foundation. So that uh, my own, which is Kellogg, the new one, was set up to provide for non-traditional students uh, and got substantial funding from the Kellogg Foundation, which is one of the largest charitable foundations in the world. And incidentally, when the ignorant or the malicious uh, ask why Oxford is trying to raise so much money in support of a narrow and elite constituency, it's helpful perhaps to remember my college, Kellogg College, which is now the largest graduate college in Oxford. Uh, it brings to the, uh, to the wider world what the university has to offer. And my university department, the Department for Continuing Education, which caters, believe it or not, for over 15,000 part-time non-traditional students each year. It's almost as big as the rest of the university put together. It's the greatest outreach programme in any university, with the possible exception of London. And we urgently need to let politicians and mandarins know about it, because by and large they don't. Uh, they, they're totally ignorant of the way that Oxford almost is carrying the torch uh, for the whole course of outreach. And it is the one university regularly singled out as doing nothing uh, for outreach, and, and nothing could be, could be falser. Now, inevitably, in, in a survey such as this, there's a tendency to concentrate on, on the great buildings and the grand projects. And I have, in any case, been trying to suggest where you can easily see some of the best examples so that when you're wandering around, a little bit of this may, may come back to you, I hope. Um, 
But it's not just the buildings, it's, of course, collections and, and so on as well. If you think of the great collections of the Bodleian Library, I mean, that's an entire talk, at least one entire talk in itself. Uh, until the foundation of the British Library, the Bodleian was the national library. Uh, gifts to the Bodleian have been, from the start, have been staggering. Um, my own favourite, again, just to personalise it, the gift to the library by Kenneth Graham of the royalties to Wind in the Willows, uh, which for many years provided the library with a welcome income. Uh, no longer, but it, it was useful. Um, I suppose the simple point I'm making here is that gifts don't have to be of cash. Uh, the collections of the Ashmolean, uh, another case in point, reopened, as you know, a couple of years ago, 2009, the Ashmolean reopened, I think, to sensational effect. Um, following generous grants from the Her Heritage Lottery Front and from, from the Lindbury Trust. But also, always bear in mind, very, very many gifts from individuals uh, of a wide range of, of scale. And what it means is that the museum can now display its treasures. This is not just something for Oxford, it's for the whole world. And you see it works because the visitor numbers are quite staggering since the... Uh, since their Ashmolean reopened. And they're not all Oxford people, they're coming from all over. And um, it, it's the gifts that go into the Ashmolean that can now be displayed. They can put much more of their pre-Raphaelites on, you know, sort of fashionable uh, topic of, of, of the moment and so on. I could go on indefinitely, and you probably think I have. Um, the final example I want to share with you re uh, relates to a process within Oxford that many people have now forgotten and even more are completely unaware ever took place. And I refer to the refacing of Oxford. That took place from the late 1950s. By the 1950s, Oxford had reached this... Um, oh, sorry, I was going to show you that. For, I'd forgotten I was going to put this and continue. It's one of my favourites. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> we needn't think that ev not everyone has the same view as... <laughs> As we do, I do like that. Um, but uh, the, the state to which Oxford had, had reached by the 1950s, anybody going to own up to even remembering this? I, I, I don't. Um, I could. I could have visited, but I, I don't remember it. But you can see this is the library at Christchurch. And look, just look at it. I mean, it is actually physically dangerous because lumps were dropping off. Uh, and this was the problem that I, I mentioned earlier at the, at the Sheldonian. They began in the 16th, 17th century to use much softer stone. Uh, and it did not weather well, as you can see. Uh, and it reached an, an appalling uh, state. And it, it, what happened was that, uh, in, if I remember rightly, in 1958, uh, the Vice-Chancellor, Alex Smith, Warden of New College, launched a campaign to restore the, the fabric of the, the place. It was a hugely ambitious enterprise, even for the time. I mean, just think of trying to do this now. Uh, you'd be talking NASA space budgets. But it was ambitious, even, even for the 50s. Um, you're, what you're doing is restoring much of the fabric of an entire city. Because it's not just one or two buildings like that. Everywhere you went, the old emperor's heads. Um, the set that are there now at the bottom, they're the third set of emperor's heads on, on the site. But it, so people like to think it was romantic and crumbly and so on, but it, 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 was, it was actually a nightmare. Um, Oxford broke, setting about this project, it broke one of its golden rules, which is never do anything for the first time. Um, 
the university at that time has been described as pathologically cautious. Um, but this was to be the first time anything on this scale had been attempted. There was, I think probably rightly, a reluctance to launch onto this, but they did. And I think we can be thankful that, that they did so. And it turned out to be a classic example of how to organise a campaign. They made sure that the right people were put in charge. Not just friends and relatives, but people who knew what they were doing. Assiduous groundwork before you launch the campaign. And making sure that your estimates for how much you need are subject to rigorous, rigorous external study to make sure you've, you've got it right and then you go for it in a big way. Uh, they reckoned that a total of two million would be needed. The appeal was launched in June 1957 and it reached its target in August 1958. Now that is quite remarkable. There were generous grants from the Ford Foundation, the new type of giver that I've just mentioned, from the government, from the city of Oxford, from businesses and charitable uh, trusts. But I think what will interest today's audience most is that 420,000 of that money, a fifth of the total, was given by individual Oxford graduates, by no means all of them millionaires. It's perhaps the last time, as I say, that an enterprise on this scale could be contemplated refacing an entire city, but that might take place. So if you want to be clever and somebody stops you in the street and says, excuse me, how old is Oxford? You can say, well, about 50, 60 years. <laughs> or as literally, that is, that's true. And I think this, this, this appeal uh, pointed a way forward, and I note that some of its successful techniques have been intelligently adapted by, by Oxford thinking. Uh, I'm thinking not just of the buildings, but of, of the techniques employ, employed here. And mention of Oxford thinking brings us uh, right up to date. Uh, I'm an academic. I have no formal links to Oxford thinking. But as a senior member of the university, I want to pay tribute to the campaign's uh, achievements. They've benefited colleges as, as well as, as the university. And the present campaign, I think, has been remarkable for the collaboration of colleges and universities, which, as you'll have gathered from what I've been saying, has not always been the case uh, here at Oxford. Uh, colleges have so far produced half the astonishing sum of approaching £1.2 billion that has so far uh, been raised. And the campaign, Oxford Thinking Campaign's three main aims are, I think, firstly, to support students quite properly, uh, and just this week, I think it is, that six new graduate research scholarships have been announced in the humanities. The humanities making a fight back. Uh, they're linked with the Wolfson Foundation. Um, the second aim, principal aim, is to support academic posts and programmes. And only last month, the chair of Old Testament studies, which looked to be doomed in a very old-fashioned, a very Old Testament way, uh, very much under threat, but has been saved, uh, thanks to a donation of 1.8 million from the Kirby Lang Foundation. And the third main aim of the campaign is to provide for, for, for buildings and, and infrastructure. And in that connection, I would mention just one, the fundraising for the Mathematics Institute on what will become the uh, Radcliffe Observatory quarter. And I speak about that with the, the impressed authority of one who achieved the possibly unique distinction of a zero mark in the GCE maths exam uh, many moons ago. But I'm all for it, for other people, I tell you. Yeah. Uh, the continued um, excellence of the uh, 
this university and its colleges uh, will rely, as it always has, on the generosity of wealthy benefactors and of great charitable trusts and foundations. But it will also rely on the myriad gifts, individually perhaps small but cumulatively immense, of individuals who wish to contribute something to the future of one of this country's longest lasting and most successful enterprises. And we're all too well aware in this country at the moment, we don't have many such enterprises that have uh, started first and are still world leaders. And we should be proud of this university because it started first and it is still a world leader. Uh, and it is so because people have seen it as something worth supporting over very many centuries. Uh, benefactions come in all shapes and sources, shapes and sizes. I've been trying to personalise it a bit by saying something that appealed to me. And I will refer to a big quest by the late William Bryce of the Pitt Rivers Museum, who left a sum of money to provide refreshments to the technical staff at the museum. I think a thoughtful, imaginative and useful gift. Uh, it's within the power of each of us to do as much for, for Oxford as our predecessors have done in, in all work, walks of, of life. And what I've tried to do is give you some idea of how this has been achieved over the past 900 years in this most delightful, if perverse of places. And uh, the way in which I hope I've managed to convey in way, the way in which the university has not only been helped on its way by philanthropy, but has actually been formed by philanthropy and is the way it is as a result of it. So congratulations to you all at 9.30, staying awake for a, for a whole hour, those of you who have. Uh, and I hope you're having a great weekend. I hope you enjoy the rest of the day. So thank you very much, everyone. Thanks.